Well, let's open in the Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. We're going to read from verse 30 to verse 36. As Jesus spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Let's pray. Lord, as we sang in that last song, we do need you. We need you for absolutely everything, from the little things to the great things, Lord. And we're so blessed that you are our God, and you are a provider, and that you love us. And Lord, as we consider this passage this morning, I just ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to think about it and understand what Jesus has said you would help us to see what it means and what it means for our lives. And you would help us to see, Lord, the glory of your Son as he's revealed as our liberator. And Lord, we commit this time to you. We thank you for this time. And we look expectantly to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The subject of slavery and the emancipation of slaves is a subject that fascinates the minds and the hearts of men and women. And the reason is obvious. As John Calvin put it simply, all feel and acknowledge that slavery is a very wretched state. Would you agree? When you think about slavery, and when you think about the, the examples of slavery that come to mind, we all recognize this is a pretty awful thing to have and to be in, to be a slave. A typical definition of slavery I took from the American Heritage Dictionary is the condition in which one person is owned as property by another and is under the owner's control, especially in involuntary servitude. Now, how many of you would like to be a slave? Controlled by another, owned by another, having to work for another and you don't want to, right? You just have to. You're dominated by another person completely. I don't think any of us want that. And it's virtually always bad when you think about the examples of slavery. We, we pity slaves. And so it's no wonder that the idea of slavery and emancipation from slavery is so fascinating to us. Because, one, it's fascinating that a person could be in such a wretched condition. And of course, being freed from slavery is a fascinating thing as well. Um, it's triumphant. It's invigorating when you think of someone who's been in such a condition, and then they're finally released and they're finally free. I think that excites us, right? When we think about how bad that state is, there's a sense of how 
wonderful it is to be free. And if you're always free, then you might not appreciate that freedom that you have. Some of Hollywood's biggest blockbusters are about slavery. In 1960, there was a movie called Spartacus that I guess rocked, uh, you know, the moviegoers' worlds, and people were really excited about this. It's about a slave revolt in Rome. More recently, we have the movie The Matrix, if you've ever seen that, right? And it's about these aliens who enslaved humanity, and the humans are waking up to the fact that they're slaves, and they're rebelling and uprising. Twelve Years a Slave was recently a big hit. We just are fascinated and we love stories of slavery and emancipation. That struggle and that fight for freedom, whether a person's uprising or escaping, I think we think it's romantic, exciting, and just. They should be released, right? However, not all slavery is tyrannical or illegitimate, and not all slavery should be outlawed. And I know that sounds funny to the American ear, but actually what we find in the 13th Amendment, which is the amendment that released the slaves, here's what we find. Here's the 13th Amendment in the Constitution. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So the 13th Amendment abolishes slavery except for criminals. And I think as Americans, we believe that there's a legitimate slavery where someone is a criminal, they're then dominated, right? And they're controlled. And they're not allowed to be free. And they're often put to involuntary servitude for their crimes. And so not all slavery is intrinsically wrong and should be stopped. And I think that's an important point as we'll go on this morning. This morning, we're going to be examining this profoundly important passage in which Jesus talks about slavery and the emancipation from slavery, and it was wildly controversial in his day, and it has not been less controversial in our day, brothers and sisters, because if you're familiar with this passage, you know Bible readers today continue to furiously debate the meaning of this, of this saying and this teaching of Jesus. Why is it so controversial? Why is the passage we read so controversial? Because Jesus proclaims that there is a slavery to and emancipation from sin. Now try to wrap your mind around that for a moment. There's a slavery to sin and an emancipation from sin. That's going to be controversial, isn't it? Because how we understand the nature of that slavery and that freedom determines the very nature of Christianity and how we understand Christianity. True? What if you get this one wrong? What's going to happen to how you think of the religion of Christ and the faith of Christ? Edward Welch comments that the doctrine of sin is central to Scripture. If our understanding of sin is unclear, every other truth will be affected. True? Do you agree? If we get sin wrong, everything else is going to be wrong. And so this morning, we're going to be digging into the doctrine of sin. But the good news is, according to Welch, truths about sin always point us to the glories of Christ. Amen? So studying the doctrine of sin and learning about sin is not a rabbit trail from learning about Jesus. It's actually how we come to know about who Jesus is and how glorious he is. I'm not going to deny at all that this teaching of Jesus is very difficult to interpret. 
Did it immediately make sense to you when we read it? The problem is, is that Jesus says so little. He says, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so we don't have a lot of information here to work with, right? Jesus is kind of being ambiguous. And so it's difficult to interpret because he says so little. He's so absolute. And what he says is so consequential, so important. But I hope by the end of this sermon that you'll have a good handle on what's involved here so that you can go and meditate upon it yourself further and think about more of this, what this ambiguous saying of Jesus really means. So I'll divide this sermon up into three sections, as usual. Number one, we're going to talk about the first thing in the passage, which is true discipleship. Secondly, we'll look at the nature of the slavery and the emancipation from that slavery. That'll take up most of our time. And then we'll just briefly close with a reflection on the liberator, who is the one who liberates us. So first of all, true discipleship, because Jesus talks about this here. True discipleship. So we begin by considering the context. Now notice in verse 30, look with me in the scripture, as Jesus spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Now we know from the context, Jesus has just proclaimed himself to be the light of the world. He is the guide. He is the one who brings reality to us and lets us know what's there. And he tells us that if you follow my teaching, you will have eternal life. You'll have the light of life. What does he say will happen if you don't follow his teaching? He says in the context, you will die in your sins. So he's saying, I am the light of the world. I'm the one who's bringing truth. If you follow me, you'll have life. If you don't, you'll have death. You'll die in your sins. And while the leadership and the crowds resisted this, here we see in verse 30 that there are many people who actually believed in him. Now, as careful readers of the Gospel of John, we will know that just because people have some kind of a faith in Jesus doesn't mean we should get too excited, right? We've already seen in the Gospel of John people believing in Jesus and Jesus not getting excited about that. In chapter 2, 23 and 24, many believed in Jesus when they saw his signs that he was doing, but Jesus did not believe in them. Interesting, right? So just because you have some advance towards Jesus doesn't mean he's excited about that. He knows what's in man. He knows all men. And in chapter 6, we see many of those disciples who were following him, when he began to teach some things that were not palatable to them, then they said, we're out of here, right? This doesn't make sense. This isn't good. And so their faith in him was actually a spurious faith. It wasn't really real. They believed in him. They believed he was the Messiah. They believed his claim to be the guide. And so they're like, okay, he's the Messiah. He's the guide. He's going to bring truth and blessing. But that doesn't mean they really understood the content of what he was teaching or appreciated it. So look at verse 31. Here's what Jesus says in response to these people who believe. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. So he doesn't say you're already my true disciples. 
And here we see in verse 31, brothers and sisters, a principle that remains, and that is the difference between a true and a false disciple of Jesus is that a true disciple continues or abides in the word of Christ. That's how you know. So if you want to know whether someone is a Christian or a disciple, because a lot of people profess to be, then the only thing you need to ask is, do they hold to the teaching of Jesus? That's what you need to ask. That's what Jesus says here. My true disciples are those who abide in my word. The Greek word is abide, and you should recognize that it comes up a lot in the scriptures. So what exactly does it mean to abide in his word? I think it means two things. First of all, in the setting of chapter 8, up to this point, Jesus has taught that he is the guide to those who are in darkness, and Jesus has taught that he is the one who will provide the blessing, the water of life to Israel. In other words, he's made it clear to the Jewish mind, he's the Messiah who will bring the right teaching. He's the Messiah who will bring blessing to Israel. And up to this point, Jesus has only alluded in an, in an ambiguous way to his death. He's talked in the Bread of Life discourse that you need to eat his flesh and drink his blood, and he came to give his, give his flesh for the life of the world. But even that was kind of ambiguous. Even the 12 disciples don't really understand what Jesus is doing, do they? Do you think that the 12 at this point already knew what Jesus was doing? Well, in chapter 6, we saw that they didn't leave Jesus, but you get the sense they're still confused. They say, Lord, I don't know where else we're going to go. We know that you have the words of eternal life, so we're going to stick with you as our teacher. We're going to keep receiving your words because they are the words of truth, but we grant this is a difficult doctrine, right? And in the Synoptic Gospels, we see Peter proclaim Jesus to be the Son of God and the, and the Christ, the Messiah, and, and Jesus proceeds to explain that the Son of God and the Messiah will be given over to crucifixion and death. And what is Peter, the star disciple, to think about that? Not so, Lord, right? No way, this is not going to happen to you. So Peter was not tracking with Jesus' ministry and his message and his program, right? He didn't understand he was still savoring the things that be of man and the things that be of the devil and not the things that be of God. So while they were adhering to him as a teacher, they still didn't understand the fullness of what he was about, the full disclosure of Jesus as the provider of eternal life by means of his substitutionary death for sinners, providing righteousness through faith alone in his death, was not fully understood even by the 12 disciples at this point. True, do you think? And it certainly wasn't understood by this crowd who was believing in him. In verse 28, notice, in verse 28, we looked at this last week. Jesus says, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. When you've lifted me up on the cross, you have lifted me up to my glorification and my glory. And when you see my glory, you will know who I am. Now for the 12, that was when they saw him resurrected and ascended and sitting at the right hand of the Father and, God, and Christ sending the, the Holy Spirit to them at Pentecost. Then they understood who he was after his crucifixion. 
For us, that's when we understand the glory of Jesus. That's when we understand that he wasn't just lifted up and crucified and it was this tragic mistake, but that he was crucified because he laid down his life for us. That was the will of the Father. He was doing what the Father wanted him to do. And he rose from the dead and he ascended up to the right hand of God and he pleads for us there, amen, and intercedes for us on behalf uh, of us because we're sinners and through his death, he makes atonement for us in intercession. So when we realize his glory, then we know who he is. For Israel and for the rest of the world who still don't know his glory, they will know it at the second coming when he comes and they'll realize who he is. So the first thing that abiding in his teaching involves is staying with Jesus' teaching, staying with him as a guide as more and more truth is revealed, as more is disclosed until finally you come to know who he is. You're my true disciples if you stick with me all the way until I fully disclose myself. But the second thing that abiding in his teaching means I think, not just here, but elsewhere in Scripture also, is that once you understand the content of his teaching and you've held, up, you've held fast to him as a teacher until then, you then hold fast until the end to the teaching of Christ. Because there's something else that continues. Once you believe, once you know him, and that is Satan will continue to attempt to overcome you. Until the day you die and go to be with the Lord, you are in a battle, you are in a war, you have to fight the fight of faith, and Satan will attempt to overcome us through deceit, false teaching, through family, through threat, through persecution. He'll say, give it up. It's not worth it to continue holding to the teaching of Jesus. Look at all you lose. Look how wrong you are. And he'll continue to wage his war. And so we must abide. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And verse 24. Now this is John writing many years later after the cross. And he tells us to abide in the teaching. Stay with the teaching of Jesus, what you've heard. And I'll read verse 24 to verse 28. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 24. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him." Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Now, it's interesting, though, because here there's an exhortation, right? He's exhorting us to abide in the teaching and to abide in Christ, which is simply to believe and hold fast. 
But there's also a promise that if you are born of God and you have the Spirit, you will abide. And this is one of those things in John that he tells you to do something, but he also promises that if you're God's children, you will do it. You will overcome. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And turn with me to the Hebrews chapter 6. There's another important verse here on this topic of abiding. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. Hebrews 6, verse 11 and 12. And the author of Hebrews is writing here to those who have believed, and he says, We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish or dull, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Notice two things are necessary. Faith, and what's the other thing he says here? Patience. And he says, you're imitating people. So you can look in history, and you can see people who have <laughs> believed God's word, and they've clung to it despite all the attacks of the devil to snuff it out and to stop them. They endured patiently, believing in God, and they inherited the promise through the patience. And Revelation talks about this as well, that, that, that during the persecution, when, when the saints of God are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus, John it tells us, this is the faith and the patience of the saints that they know that this persecution is coming to an end and that they know that Jesus is going to return and they have faith and they have patience through that persecution. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35, uh, the author of Hebrews points to examples of Old Testament saints and they said that some of them were sawn in two. Some of them were, were, were murdered and killed and they wandered around in, in the wilderness in sheepskins and they did this because they wanted to obtain a better resurrection. So what, what he's saying is these people endured a lot because they looked by faith to the promise and they endured patiently and waited for what God had promised. And then what does he say in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2? Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, what is the exhortation? Let us run the race with patience, looking to Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. So, so there's, there's faith and then there's enduring patiently despite Satan's onslaught, which is really just a manifestation of your faith. That you not only understand what Jesus is saying and believe it, but you also value it. You value his promise. You see it as the pearl of great price. It's worth losing everything for to gain eternal life through Christ. Does that make sense? You not just understand it, but you say, yep, I'm gonna, I, I need to give up everything to get this. I will believe despite whatever temptation to not. So here's what Jesus says. If you abide in my word, simply put, if you remain in, in this teaching, if you hold fast to it, you're truly my disciples. Secondly, let's go back to John chapter 8. 
John chapter 8. We now are going to look at the nature of the slavery and the emancipation. And like I said, this is difficult stuff, so please uh, appreciate the difficulty and put on your thinking caps with me. It's difficult stuff. If we abide in the teaching, Jesus tells us two things will happen in verse uh, 32. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you hold fast to what I teach you, if you stay with me as a guide, no matter what, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Sticking with Jesus as your guide will plant you into reality. And knowing reality, knowing what is, really there, sets you free. I really love this promise of Jesus. Basically, what he's saying is this. If you just got out of the lies, the world is just dominated by lies and ignorance and darkness. The world does not know what really is going on with themselves or with God. And if you were just free of the lies and in reality, you'd see that all your problems are taken care of. It's the lies that put you into bondage. It's the truth that sets you free when you know what the truth is. I think this is a really shocking statement. The truth will set you free. Could you imagine saying that in a courtroom when you're on trial and they're trying to determine whether you're guilty or not and you really are guilty? The truth will set you free. No, no, don't bring the truth to light. That's not going to be good for me. We're all guilty sinners, right? We're all wicked. And Jesus is saying the truth is actually going to be good for you, which is not what we might think. No, no, I gotta, I'm only safe in the, in the lie, right? And he's saying, actually, you're safe in the truth. You're not safe in the lie. And it's good news. The truth will set you free. This is a positive thing. We should be excited about this promise, and yet we see a negative response to it. Now, the Jews replied to Jesus, probably some who had believed in him, probably also many in the crowd who didn't believe in him. They replied to Jesus negatively. They were bothered by this saying. They were offended by the saying because they saw the implications of this saying. The implications of this saying is that they are not free. And the only way to be free is by believing in him. And they rightly understood those implications. So they didn't like it. I want you to imagine telling someone today, if you believe in Jesus, you won't be a slave anymore. Try telling that to your neighbor, your family member who's not a Christian. What are they going to think? That's going to be offensive, right? What do you mean I'm, I'm not going to be a slave anymore? I'm not a slave. And if it's offensive today to people, it was especially offensive to the Jews in the first century because slavery was an especially sensitive issue to the Jews. Think of their beginnings. God brings them out of slavery in Egypt at the very beginning and makes them his people. In other words, Israel, their destiny is not slavery. It's freedom. God intended for them to not be slaves, but free. And he brought them out of slavery at first. And now Jesus is saying they are slaves. So that's offensive. Or in their history, one of the signs of their 
disobedience to the covenant was God judging them and making them subject to the nations around them. And of course, the, the, in history, the great subjection was their subjection to the Babylonians. And they were slaves and they were controlled by the Babylonians, and it was a sign of disapproval. So now he's saying you're slaves. So you're not only not what your destiny is supposed to be, you're under covenant judgment. That's offensive. But even more offensive than just the fact that Israel should be free, they were brought out of Egypt, and if they are slaves, it's a sign they're under judgment. Think about something even more important, and that is that at the very beginning when God chose Abraham and promised his descendants uh, that they would become a great nation and blessed, Abraham had two sons, one from a free woman and one from a bondwoman, right? And in the story, God approved of the bondwoman and her son being cast out of that family. And so essentially what we have here in the background is this Isaac Ishmael theme that if you're a slave, then you are not really a part of the family of God at all. It's not only that you're a part of the family of God, but you're under judgment. You're not even a part of the family of God at all if you're a slave. It's a sign you're not in the, in the family. The slave is cast out. And this is what Jesus says in verse 25. And brothers and sisters, I believe he's referring to this Isaac Ishmael idea and that the Jews were picking up on it. He says in verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain. They would have understood what he was talking about, and so of course they take deep offense at this. If you believe in me, you'll be free. You'll be like Isaac. If you don't believe in me, you're like Ishmael, and you won't remain in the house. And so in verse 33, when they say that we are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone, I don't think they're, talk, they're saying we've never been physically subjugated to anybody like in Egypt or in Babylon. Of course, in even the Romans were, were controlling them. So I don't think verse 33 is saying as a nation we've never be, been enslaved ever. But I think what they are referring to is this Isaac Ishmael theme. And they're saying, hold on a minute. We are Abraham's children, descendants of Isaac and Jacob. We are not like Ishmael. We are not bond servants. We are free people. We are his true children, his legitimate children. And if you're familiar with the rest of the chapter, this subject of whether they are the real children of Abraham or not is dominant. This dominates the rest of the chapter. Who's your father, really? Are you really the children of Abraham? But even if we identify Jesus that Jesus is talking about Isaac and Ishmael and whether you're really a child of Abraham, a freeborn, or whether you're a son of Hagar, a bond, a bond servant, that still doesn't fully answer what the nature of the slavery is here in Jesus' mind. So you are a slave if you don't believe, but what is the nature of that slavery? Because it is clear that they were the physical descendants of Abraham. They were not the physical descendants of Hagar. And we see in verse 34, Jesus tells us what he means. Truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. In other words, I'm not talking about your physical descent. I'm talking about your spiritual condition before God. You're a slave if you commit sin. Sin. 
Now, we could take this saying to mean, the Greek could be interpreted to mean, everyone who commits the sin is a slave. And we could interpret that to mean, whoever doesn't believe in Christ, thus committing the sin of unbelief, is not in the family of Abraham, is not a child of Abraham, but is an is a Ishmaelite, if you will. And in other words, what he would be saying here is not you are experiencing slavery in your condition and in your experience in life. It's just your identity. If you don't believe in me by identity, you're not in the family. That could be the interpretation of Jesus' saying. If you don't believe in me, then you are not actually identified as the children of Abraham. But all commentators that I've found, and all translations probably in your own translations, think that Jesus is referring not to just their identity as not in the family of God, but also to their experience. These people are actually, by experience, slaves. And therefore, they commit sin. They commit sin because they are slaves to sin. And I think this is right. To be free then means to be free from sin, and to be a slave means to be a slave to sin. And who is a slave to sin, according to Jesus, in verse 34? Who is a slave to sin? The one who commits sin. Let me ask you, do you commit sin? Do you commit sin? Are you a slave to sin then? Jesus says everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Do you commit sin? Yes. Are you a slave to sin? Why, don't, why do we hesitate to answer? Because here's the radical, crazy, wildly controversial thing here in this passage. Jesus is saying if you're a slave, in verse 35, you won't remain in the house forever. So we have salvation in, in, in the stakes here. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. If you're a slave to sin, you won't remain in the house. You're going to be cast out. Three, three points initially I'd like to make about this. Number one, Jesus introduces this teaching with a double amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, or amen, amen, I say to you. In other words, this is a solemn truth of God, brothers and sisters, and it is contrary to the wisdom of the world. When Jesus says, amen, amen, he means this is a solemn truth you need to pay attention to. This is definitely true, and the world definitely doesn't think this is true. This goes against the grain, and I'm telling you, it is true, and it's serious. Secondly, this teaching exposes every single person in this world to be a slave to sin, both Jew and Gentile alike. If this teaching is true, then all are equally enslaved. Because Jesus says, if you commit sin, which everyone does, then you are a slave to sin. D.A. Carson comments that in Jesus' view, Caesar himself is a slave. Now the Jews might have responded and said, okay, I can accept that principle. If you commit sin, then you're a slave to sin. That's a true principle, but I am not a, a 
someone who commits sin, and so I am not a slave. It's a true principle, but it doesn't apply to me. But what we see here in Jesus' teaching is that the Son sets you free. You're not set free by what you do. You're set free only by the Son and if you abide in His Word. So this applies to every single person in this world before they believe in Jesus. They are slaves to sin and if they're slaves, they will be cast out. They will not inherit the blessing. So it's a pretty serious teaching of Jesus. And thirdly, whatever slavery to sin means, it is a bondage people can be unconscious of. So Jesus is telling them, if you commit sin, you're a slave to sin. And that wasn't like obvious to them, right? They're thinking, what? are you calling us slaves? A person can be a slave to sin and they don't necessarily feel themselves enslaved. The Jews didn't think they were. Someone has rightly said that man's greatest need, friends, is to know what his greatest need is. It's very important that you know your problem and you don't miss what your real problem is. See, most people think, yes, everybody sins, but that doesn't mean that we're all slaves to sin. Jesus is counteracting the wisdom of the world here. As long as you're trying to be good, or as long as you have more good than bad in your life, or as long as you avoid the big damning sins, then no, you're not a slave to sin. You're not dominated by sin. You're not overwhelmed and overcome and controlled by sin. Sin's contro- you're controlling sin, essentially. Yeah, it will sometimes escape a few times, but a person's only dominated by sin when they're committing the really big bad ones or when they have more bad than good or when they're not trying. From their perspective, which, which comes about from a low view of righteousness, whatever it means to be righteous is lower than what God thinks, then a person can still sin a few times, but as long as they meet that low standard of righteousness, they're not enslaved to sin. They're overcoming sin. They're doing whatever God requires. But because Jesus' teaching of righteousness is so high, and because his teaching is reality, unless a person is impeccable, which means sinless, they are unrighteous. And why can't you be righteous? If righteousness is sinlessness, if righteousness is loving God with all that you have and all that you are and all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself, if that's the standard, why aren't you righteous? Go be righteous. That's the standard. Go overcome sin and do it. And when you see righteousness as the, the standard that it is, you, you realize, actually, I'm a slave to sin. I'm overcome by unrighteousness and sin. I cannot overcome my sin and, be, and meet the standard that God requires. We are enslaved. So it depends on your standard of righteousness. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6, and I beg you to put on your thinking caps here. This is, um, this is a very difficult teaching. Paul the Apostle, in Romans 6 and 7, goes into depth um, teaching what it means to be a slave to sin. He picks up this teaching of Jesus. 
And I want you to notice in chapter 6, verse 6 and 7, what Paul says. Knowing this, that our old self or our old man or who we were, our old identity, was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be what? Slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. So Paul talks about the fact that we are slaves to sin, but if we've died, we are free from sin. What does he mean, slaves to sin? This body of sin is enslaved. Well, look at chapter 7. He goes into um, detail explaining what he means. Chapter 7, verse 14. This is a passage we'll all be familiar with. For we know that the law is spiritual, good, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I am not practicing, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. For if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then a principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Now, if that does not describe thraldom or, in, or slavery to sin, I don't know what else would describe this. But brothers and sisters, my guess is this. My guess is that every single person experiences this. My guess is that Christians and non-Christians alike, if you were to share this with them, could attest, yeah, I do things I don't really want to do, and the things that I really want to do, I don't do, right? And my guess is that Paul experienced this slavery before he was a Christian. He experienced this. But my guess is that he never thought he was a slave before he was a Christian. He probably thought he was just at war, He's a general on the battlefield with sin, and sin and him are duking it out. Sometimes sin wins, sometimes he wins. And yeah, he finds himself being overcome by sin sometimes, but I don't think Paul thought of himself as wretched before he was a Christian, even though he would have experienced this. Because his view of righteousness was not perfection, so it's no problem. Yeah, sometimes sin gets the better of me, but it's all right. I don't need to be perfect. I'm really in control. I'm on top. But this confession, I'm a wretched man. I'm enslaved to sin, and nothing good dwells in me. I'm sure he didn't say that as a Pharisee. 
is probably something that he began to realize as a newborn Christian in the wilderness of Sinai when he's wandering around in Arabia after being blinded by Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he says he spent, what, about three years in Arabia just processing, processing the fact that as a Pharisee who thought he was so right, he was totally blind and processing who Jesus really is and what Jesus really did and what it really all meant. And of course, he would have continued to understand, I do things that I don't want to do. But as Paul realized that the righteousness that God requires is perfection, then he realized that every deviation from righteousness was exceedingly sinful, as he says in Romans chapter 7. Worthy of death, and ultimately, at its root, rebellious against God, totally disqualifying him um, for being considered by God a righteous person. Every deviation from love to God and to man. Do you see what I'm saying? The same experience before he was a Christian and after, but a different perspective, different understanding. What do you think? Do you consider your, in your experience, as you experience Romans chapter 7, you find yourself doing things you don't want to do? Do you feel that you're just a general on the battlefield duking it out with sin? Or do you feel, as Paul says here, you're wretched? What do you, what, you're not perfect? That's disgusting of you, you know? You're not perfect? That's rebellion on your part. You're not perfect? That disqualifies you from heaven. You're, you're unable to be what is required. You're enslaved to sin. Here's the controversial teaching we proclaim as Christians and that Jesus and Paul proclaimed, and that is that all of us, every single person by nature, is enslaved to sin enslaved to unrighteousness, you cannot not sin and you cannot be righteous by what you do. It's impossible. Try it. Come out on top. Show sin that you're the boss and it will show you every time that it's the boss. And because the wages of sin is death, not only are we enslaved to sin and unrighteousness, we're also enslaved to death, and we can't escape that either. And so as Calvin said, we are in a wretched state. Sin is our master. We're controlled by it. We involuntarily serve it, according to Paul. I don't even want to do it, and I'm doing it. We can't revolt like Spartacus. You can't say, I'm sick of this slavery. Come on, guys, let's overcome sin. Let's do right for once. You can't escape like a runaway slave heading up to Canada from the, ant- from the antebellum south of the United States. You're not going to do it. This teaching of Jesus means that you cannot free yourself from the slavery to sin and from unrighteousness. Sometimes physical slavery can be escaped. Spiritual slavery to sin cannot be escaped by anything that you do. That's a really unpopular, unpalatable idea, isn't it? That's so un-American. Actually, it's just so anti-human wisdom and pride, isn't it? You're in a wretched condition you can't get out of, no matter what you do. 
Because the slavery is not to something external to yourself, but it's internal. It's the sin that dwells in you. Actually, you're the problem. Paul's not excusing himself here when he says, I don't do what I want to do and what I don't want to do. That's what I do. He's not excusing himself. He's saying, man, I'm a messed up individual, super messed up. I'm divided. I know what's good. I think it's good. I want to do it. I also want to do bad, and I, the bad overcomes me. I'm a wicked, evil person, worthy of death. And so Jesus here is telling the Jews, whoever commits sin, one sin, doesn't matter what sin, you're a slave, and you're not going to abide forever. How does that make you feel? Well, if this is the nature of the slavery, if I'm right in this, then what is the nature of the emancipation? I'd like to ask you, how many of you feel in your personal experience and your personal behavior you are free from sin. Now, if you're not free from sin, you won't abide forever. And the Son sets you free if you abide in His Word. Now, how many Christians can attest, yeah, I am free in my own experience and personal belief, totally free from unrighteousness and, and sin, totally free in my own personal experience and behavior. I don't feel dominated at all. I do what I want to do, and what I don't want to do, I don't do. So the question is, what is the nature of this emancipation if it seems in our experience nothing has changed? I didn't feel anything change. Well, let's look at Romans 6, verse 6 again. I'd like to ask you three questions from this verse. Paul says, knowing this, that our old self or old man, who we were, was crucified with him. Now, here's the first question. How many of you felt that? Do you remember being crucified? Did you notice it? The change? Now, if you're a Christian, were you crucified with Christ? Did you feel it? How do you know you're crucified with Christ? Because that's the teaching, right? That's the word. Knowing this, that our old man, what we were, was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. The body of sin is done away with. Did you feel it? Did you notice that? so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if you're a Christian who has believed in Jesus, have you died and been crucified with Christ? Yes. Now, if you've died according to verse 7, what are you? Free from sin. Do you, did you feel the death? No. Do you feel the freedom? Is the there's the difficult question. Did you feel the freedom? I'd like to answer no, actually. That my freedom consists in the fact that I have died with Christ and that I am objectively in Christ no longer a slave to sin. So this is an objective thing rather than a subjective thing. 
Look at verse 16 with me. Now this is just like Jesus' teaching. Here, Paul gives a principle like, whoever commits sin is the slave of sin. He says, do, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. There's a principle. Whoever you give yourself to obey, sin or righteousness, that's the person you're enslaved to. That's the thing you're enslaved to. So that's the principle. Now the question is, who have you given yourself to obey? Sin or righteousness? In your experience. Do you sin? Do you commit sin? So are you the slave of sin then? Well, look at verse 17. But... Now, Paul contrasts something. He says, yeah, that's the principle. If you give yourself to sin, you're a slave to sin. If you give yourself to righteousness, you're a slave to righteousness. But here's some good news. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, meaning you had already given yourself to sin and given yourself to be a slave to sin, that was, that was who you were. You were that. You were totally enslaved. Though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to what? That form of teaching to which you were committed. So now we're back to what Jesus was saying about slavery and how one is free. You're free, according to Jesus, by abiding or believing his word. And Paul is saying here is that, yeah, we were all slaves to sin because according to that principle, we lost. We sinned and we're slaves to sin. But thanks be to God, we obeyed from the heart the teaching. That simply means you believed. You accepted the gospel when it came to you. And look at what 18 says, having been freed from sin, not by your personal obedience or behavior, but by believing the gospel, you became slaves of righteousness. Now you're in, it's impossible for you not to be righteous now. Try it as a believer. I'm not encouraging you to sin. But if you believe in Jesus Christ and you sin, like I do, have you ceased to be righteous in the sight of God? No. So before, you couldn't do a good work that would make you righteous. Now you can't do a bad deed that would make you unrighteous if you're a Christian and a believer in Jesus. Why? Not because God has turned a blind eye to his law and to righteousness and to justice, but because Jesus Christ has taken your place. He's died for you. He's taken all of your sins. And through faith, you have died with him. That old you, that sinful self that's totally dominated by sin and unrighteousness, it's dead. It's not amended or reformed. It's dead. You see? It's gone. And you don't know. I didn't feel it, but it's gone. Jesus really died. And through faith, God counts me as having died also with him. You're really dead. And you're a new creation in Christ. You're not a slave to sin anymore in Jesus by faith. Isn't that amazing? So no, we are not freed from sin by attempting to stop sinning. We are freed from sin by abiding in the word. And this is by faith and not by sight, brothers and sisters. It's one of those strange, supernatural, walking by water things in the Bible. That you look at your own life and you say, you know, I sure feel like a slave to sin. I sin every day. I don't want to and I do. Sin gets the better of me. But through faith in what Jesus has done for me, I am 
not a slave to sin. I am a slave to righteousness. If you understand that, brothers and sisters, and you believe in that, you are free indeed. You are Isaac, which means laughter. It's funny and strange that you are. And in the end, now the good news is this isn't only objective. In the end, you will experience for yourself in your own body that total freedom from sin, which right now you have through faith, through Christ, through identity in him as a new creation. But when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, you will appear with him in glory and actually be totally free from the corruption of your body and from the dominion of sin in, in your experience. But only if now by faith you're free. Now, in the meantime, actually, and this is a big topic to go into, I was kind of cherry-picking verses in Romans because Paul, in the context here, is talking about in the meantime, between having been freed objectively from sin and to have become objectively righteous through faith, in the meantime, between that and the coming of the Lord, when we'll actually in our bodies be completely free in experience, Paul tells us that when we reckon the truth... That is, when we set our mind on the fact that we are now not slaves to sin anymore and when we are now slaves to righteousness, um, that reckoning of our true condition enables us to live differently in this world. It enables us to bear good works because we're not in, when we reckon that, we realize I'm not under the dominion of the law and its prohibitions which arouse rebellion in the soul what I'm actually under the grace of God and when I realize what God has done for me that arouses in me gratitude worship expectation joy peace so Paul isn't saying that this teaching doesn't affect you at all in this life it really does when you're remembering it when you're realizing man I'm actually totally righteous right now that will affect you when you remember it but He's teaching us of the objective nature of our emancipation here. If you're a believer and a participator in the death of Christ, are you free from sin? Kevin says yes. (laughs) Let me ask again. If you believe in Jesus and have participated in his death and his burial and his resurrection, are you free from sin? Yes. Yes. Praise God. And I'd like just to close with this final reflection on the liberator. Jesus says in John 8, 36, that the Son will set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I'd just like to reflect for one moment. Why would the Son do that for us? Okay? He abides in the house forever. He's the Son. He was the only man... He is the only man who by himself is free from sin and who by himself the Father is pleased in. Amen? He is God's beloved Son and God has pleasure in him in and of himself for the Son has no sin. The Son meets the standard of righteousness. The Son is perfect. He is the Son who abides forever. But if Jesus is the Son of God who is 
whom God is pleased with and who is sinless and who remains in the house forever, why would he come and deliver wretched slaves and make us sons and daughters of God, joint heirs with him in the house forever? Why would he do that? Well, here's why he wouldn't do it. It's not that the son looks down on our slavery to sin and says, all slavery is unjust. All slavery is intrinsically wrong. I must go deliver these poor people who are under the tyranny of sin. That wasn't his motive. Because we were justly condemned to die. Our slavery in, that, in our sin was something God gave us over to in judgment. And we're condemned to die And there's actually nothing wrong with that. That's good, because we deserve it. And so no, it's not just him pitting us in our slavery and saying, slavery should never happen in this world. Actually, the condemnation for sin is this slavery to death. Brothers and sisters, John 3.16 tells us why. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And he, the Son, came into the world. And as we read, as we're going to see in the Gospel, he was actually bound in chains for us. He was crucified upon the cross for us. He allowed sin, he stepped into the realm of death and allowed sin and death to overwhelm him on our behalf. He bore our sins. He bore our death. He bore the wrath of God on our behalf and died for us so that we could be free, so that we could become the children of God because he loved us. That's why he did it. And it's a, it's a wonderful Savior that we have. Amen? Amen? Just a wonderful, beautiful thing God has done for you. And I'd like to remind you of that this morning. So in closing, when we realize the contrast, when we realize how wretched our slavery was, then we will have a sense of how good the liberty is. Let's not take our liberty for granted, brothers and sisters. Let's realize, wow, I was in a really bad space, a really bad place. I could not get out of it. And the the beautiful Son of God came and delivered me. The romance of Christianity is not that human beings revolted against their slaveholders, like in Spartacus and The Matrix. Those movies are romantic as we watch people struggle and fight against their slaveholders, right? Fight against their slavery and fight for emancipation. That is not the romance of Christianity. Christianity is not, wow, you're so amazing. You struggled against the slavery to sin. Wow, you did it. That's what all the other religions in the world are, right? We're all in bondage to sin. Come on, let's rise up and fight it. Oh, yeah, glory to us, right? The romance of Christianity is that he saved us. That's the romance of Christianity. And the triumph belongs to him. So brothers and sisters, let's glorify God for his unspeakable gift of his son dying for us and providing for us miraculous freedom. Let's pray. Please stand with me. Father, our our comprehension of these things is so small. And I just pray, Lord, that through our 
our study and our meditation on the words of Jesus that who the Son sets free is free indeed. If anyone commits sin, there is slave to sin, but the Son sets them free. I just pray, Lord, that you would just lift our minds, lift our hearts to the things above, to help us to see things from your perspective, not from a human worldly perspective, Lord, that excuses and justifies sin and says it's not a big deal. Help us to see the wretchedness of humanity apart from Christ, but the glorious liberty of the children of God. And Lord, we thank you for this time that we got to share, and we thank you for your love. And Lord, when we think of your love, we truly, we truly just fall in love with you, Lord. You're so good to us. Help us to keep it in mind as we leave here this morning, as throughout the week, day by day, help us to remember the glorious freedom we have and why we have it because of you and fill us with this, this perspective and joy. I pray in Jesus' name and for your glory, Lord. Amen.